Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. I want to uh, start by saying thank you so much for your patience uh, last week. Um, we still don't know if it was a, uh, some sort of lightning strike or just a major power surge or whatever took place, uh, but it knocked out a number of systems here at Wildwood. Um, this morning, you may recognize that uh, we have all these wires hanging down. We used to have about 12 lights up here. Every one of those got knocked out. We're missing some of our, uh, some of our spots, our soundboard, our different soundboard stage box. We had a fire alarm issue. In fact, we got here Sunday morning last week, and all of our fire alarms were going off. And, uh, and this morning, yeah, we still don't have our internet upload uh, going on, and uh, so number of things we're still trying to fix, but uh, we're back up and running, and uh, I want to say thank you to some of the people from our Galveston team whose minds should have been focused on, on getting ready to go. Uh, they were the ones that were so instrumental in getting a sound system up here so we could do something, and uh, so thank you for uh, taking time to do that. Uh, thank you as well for just uh, understanding that we, we were doing our best to, uh, to bring you a service last night. You know, at this point, if anybody has a rubber band, I will, I will take it. Um, I say all that in, in advance, too, just to let you know that um, I thank you for your, your grace on me. It is uh, in, in part of my job to make sure that things are working around here well. And uh, so I got to spend all uh, through, how would I know it would be you, man? Thank you. I'm not sure you're going to want this hair tie back. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I got to spend all of my week uh, trying to get that uh, going, and uh, I didn't actually get to my computer to write anything for this sermon until Thursday afternoon. And so your grace on me is uh, in advance. Thank you for that. If I say something wrong, you get upset with me. I'm off until Wednesday. You're welcome to send me an email Wednesday, and I'll be glad to, to respond to you lovingly at that point. Um, but uh, I'm going to do, do our best this morning. I felt like a, like a college student. Uh, you know, going back in your middle age, that's an ugly term. It's weird to say I'm middle age now. Uh, those of you who are endeavoring to do that in your 40s. Uh, God bless you. Uh, I found that uh, I'm more distracted. The kids helped out with that. Uh, I found I can't uh, live on the amount of sleep that I, the little amount of sleep I used to live on. I need more. Uh, but I still ate the same amount while I was studying. <laughs> and uh, so it was my guide to the freshman 15 in three days. And uh, that's, it was uh, kind of how, how the week went. Uh, hopefully as you've been going along with us in Romans chapter 7, that uh, or throughout Romans anyway, you're just taking time yourself to dwell on these scriptures, to, uh, to really focus on, on what's being said here. I was uh, looking over uh, last week's sermon. In fact, I, even, I have the notes. I, I should say I know what the passage is going to be uh, in advance. And, and I, in verse 5 here, as, as it says that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. You know, that, that was kind of on my mind, on my heart. I'm driving around. Our sinful passions are aroused by the law. And, you know, Bettendorf has gotten cute 
they, they, they have these signs, of course, and, and you see them in other places, but uh, these signs that, that reflect your speed limit back at you, the same speed limit that's right there on your speedometer, right? So it's, it's there now for all to see, all to show that, that you are guilty. That sign's okay. If there was no one around, there was just a little bit of fun to say, I'm going to bump that number up a little bit as I go by. Well, now their sign is, is even more annoying. And we have a Bettendorf cop here today, and I'm sorry to, to say this about that, but their sign is more annoying. As I was reflecting on this passage, here I go by this sign, and what's it doing? It's smiling at me. It's, it's, it's affirming that I'm going the exact speed that it wanted me to go or whatever, and what do you think the temptation in that moment is? I need to make that thing mad. I do not like this sign smiling at me, telling me that I'm doing exactly what it wants me to do. So what do you do? Speed up. And you get the desired response, the angry face looking back at you. That's what this sign does. I think Bettendorf got it wrong. I think if they'd have put the smiley part when you're going fast, I would have been less encouraged to go fast. I just want the sign to be mad at me. In fact, I was thinking, about, thinking over this with my, with my worship team. I'm like... I wonder if there's another tear. You know, it's not enough that it's just frowning at me. Like, I want to see it stick its tongue out at me. Or can there be smoke that rises up from this sign? Now, it, it, it could be our natural response. I mean, it, it, would, would it be safe to say that if there were no sign at all, that I wouldn't be doing anything wrong? I could, I could just choose my own speed limit. I could just do what I wanted. There would, be, there would be nothing wrong. And so therefore, we could argue that it's the speed limit that's the issue, not me. To which you would say, Andrew, that's foolish. And I absolutely agree with you. Why are the speed limits there? For our protection. To make sure that when we're driving, or, or those are around us, they're, that they're safe, pedestrians are safe. I, I know there, there are studies they probably do to determine like this is a proper speed limit for this particular road. And so uh, therefore, it, this is the best speed limit for this given road and we should follow it. And it's a good thing to follow what that sign says. In our passage today, we see it's a far greater thing to follow the perfect holy law given to us by the Lord. Paul, in our text today, we're again in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. He says this, What then shall we say? That law is sin by no means. Yet if it not been for the law, I would not, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. May we keep what we just read in view, God, as we in our hearts wrestle with the law. 
as we may take time to reflect on our own sin and wrestle and try to justify why we do what you tell us not to do. May you reign supreme in our lives, Lord. Bless the preaching of your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Should have stated to in my opening, and I, and I want to point this out. Um, Pastor Brian certainly recognized uh, all that I was trying to do to get ready for this week, to get the building up, and he, he had said, I'll stay. You don't have to preach this Sunday. I'll do it. You can do the next Sunday. I said, no, I'd, I'd rather have you go. You, you kind of get to, as you're reading a passage, it grows on you. Right, you develop, a, you develop a desire for it. This is not the, the way I normally teach. Most of the time I'm, I'm teaching in a, in a counseling time. I do some speaking here and there, whether it be weddings and funerals. I, I, I do um, I like to be part of the grieving process with families and love on them during those times. And uh, so uh, last week we had the uniqueness of having a different setup. This week it's the uniqueness of having the pastor who doesn't preach very often. Thank you again for your grace. As we look into Romans 7, there are two things in these verses that kind of set them apart from the rest of the book thus far. Uh, for instance, we've seen in chapter 3 and 4, 5, 6, even the beginning here of 7, that what Paul has had to say thus far about the law has not necessarily been very positive. I just, I just shared for you that, that verse 5, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. He also says the law came to increase trespass. The law brings wrath. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Many occasions where his comments of the law might lead someone to conclude or to ask, well, then is the law bad? Is the law sinful? And if we properly understood what Paul has said about the law, then this question might come up, is the law bad? And the answer, of course, is no. So the first thing that we see that starts to separate this passage from the rest of Romans thus far is he starts to speak good about the law. He's kind of going back. He's making sure that no one can twist this. No one can misinterpret what he's saying. He doesn't want someone to feel as though now I have this, this license to sin because I live by grace. So the question is asked is, is the law sin? On the contrary, he says this, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Of course the law isn't bad, it's good. In fact, it's really good. The law sets the standard, that divine standard of God's righteousness. So here again, Paul, in a strong, emphatic response to the questioning group he's speaking to, asking, is the law bad? He says, by no means. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says, just because the law may stir up hostile feelings towards God's righteous law, that by hearing and understanding the law, we may be provoked to greater sinning than we would have had we not known the law, we cannot come to the conclusion that something is wrong with the law, that it is evil or sinful. Paul is saying that we need to keep in front of our eyes a clear distinction between the righteousness of the law and the sinfulness of our response to it. The law is not the culprit, it's our fallen corruption, or another word for it, our depravity. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law said, you shall not covet. Here's why the law is good. 
It's the first thing I'm just going to dwell on. We're going to spend most of our time here. We need to know what makes the law good because it provides the mirror to show me that I'm a sinner. And it shows the glory and the radiance of God's perfection at the same time. And the more you understand your sin, the more you marvel at the character of God. Sproul says it's, it is the testimony of the greatest saints in the history of the church that the more deeply they have come to know the character of God, the more acutely conscious they have become of the severity of their sin. But if, if we, like, like pagans, become numb, numb to our imperfections, indifferent to our sin, if we say, we're not perfect, but don't show any displeasure for our imperfections. We just show that we are comfortable in our sins. So again, I appreciate what Sproul says. The law makes known to us our sin. He says, we will not come to the gospel or beg for the mercy of God until the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And the instrument that the Spirit brings us, uses to bring us to the cross is the revelation of the law. Now I want to switch gears in just a moment. In verse 7, we see uh, uh, Paul speaking, I believe, I think I'm interpreting this correctly, that Paul is speaking on his condition prior to faith in Christ. Uh, the reason I say I, I think that's correct is that there is some debate among scholars what the I in these verses af- actually refer to. One such debate, according to Schreiner's commentary, he says uh, uh, the I refers to Adam's experience with God's command in the Garden of Eden. There's potentially some truth to that. There's some things that, that, would, that would work in that passage. The second theory is that it designates Israel's experience in receiving the law at Mount Sinai. So the I in this could refer to Israel. But I think, as, as well as many other scholars, it's an autobiographical uh, thing that Paul is giving us here. It's denoting the experience of the Apostle Paul. And so that's, that's the angle I'm going to take with this particular passage. This is Paul speaking about himself prior to salvation. And that, that's a helpful bit for us to understand. I mean, anytime we go, for instance, into a, into a counseling meeting, one of our mentors is meeting with someone who's, who's coming with us uh, with, to this with their needs. One of the, the first things that we're trying to figure out, the Lord only knows their heart, but we, we, we try, to, try to discern, is there evidence of salvation in this individual's life? If that's the case, then we have the same foundation. We have the same standard, the same mirror. And so that when I bring them evidence or I bring them scripture that may point to a sin in their life, that that they are under the same authority that I am under and hopefully will receive it well. If, If that isn't there, then they won't receive that well. And my goal instead is evangelism. Without the gospel, People live their lives thinking, well, I'm, I'm a good person. If there is a God, he'll just accept me the way that I am. Paul had convinced himself of this. Paul thought he was fine, he was self-righteous, that, that he was good enough, and then he looked in the mirror. And there was that divine standard of righteousness set forth by God. And instead he realized 
I'm not really that good. In fact, I'm really bad. The law is not sin. It reveals to us our sin, how we don't meet God's standards and how because of our inability to meet his righteous standard, we must have something else that will save us. The standard that Paul eventually goes on to confess that he did not meet was his own covetousness. We'll get to that sin in a moment, but I want to look at, uh, look at the rest of verse 8 with you. It says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Let me break it down for you like this. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you enjoying hearing the words no, not many of us would raise our hand. We don't, we don't like to hear no. We don't want to hear that there's something we can't do. I don't like that Bettendorf police sign saying, I'm happy with the speed you're going. By no means, you're not in control of me, sign. What Paul is saying here in verse eight is get to the root of the sin. God gave a prohibition, do not covet. And since we were told not to do it, the desire to covet increased in Paul. In his commentary, Thomas Schreiner says, the perverse pleasure to carry out what is forbidden is part and parcel of rebellion. One may experience the intense pleasure of doing what is forbidden, thereby manifesting one's independence and right to direct one's life. We see once again, therefore, that the root of sin is idolatry and self-worship. I don't want to honor that sign because I don't want the police to control my speed. Now, it's a lot easier when there's no police officer behind you, right? In fact, that sign makes me want to speed even more. And God's law did the same thing for Paul's rebellious heart. It wanted him, he, he wanted to sin even more. The consciousness that he was doing something wrong, he was doing sin, didn't stop him. Eve knew she shouldn't take the fruit from the tree, but did it anyway. As Pastor Brian said last week, last week, the law doesn't stop you. In fact, knowledge of the law can make things worse. In verse eight, it says there, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Paul recognizes their sin. He knows he's not following the commandment. This sin is a seizing an opportunity. I, I love this term. It's a Greek term, a military term. It means it's setting up an outpost on enemy territory, a beachhead. So it's like this. Sin moves into the enemy territory. Sin conquers some area. Then it sets up this little outpost where it continues to attack the enemy. It's kind of this personification of sin, as though sin is... Is, is thinking strategically and it's using the law to set up this outpost in order to make this marriage with Adam even worse. I'm taking scripture from last week. How does it make it worse? The outpost sin had taken up in the law caused Paul to think he was bad, really bad. And he got to a place where he labeled his identity as a coveter. And once Paul bought into this identity, then he coveted all the more. It defined him. So he did it even more because that's what he determined he was, someone who covets. 
Admiral Yamamoto, the, the Japanese admiral who, who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, it's said that after the fact in his diary, he stated, I fear all that we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Sproul says that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Sin was asleep. It was still there. It was present in him. But it didn't have that same impact. It was asleep until the law came along and it awoke that giant and it filled him with that horrible resolve of wickedness. He goes on to say, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Listen, if you don't want to think you're a sinner, don't look into the mirror. Don't look into the scriptures. As long as you don't look into the mirror, everything is fine. You go on feeling as though you're good, a lot, good enough and, and sin is dead. It's, it's not that sin doesn't exist in someone. It's just that they don't see it. But as soon as you look in the mirror, there's a standard, and you'll never measure up. Now let's consider why Paul brings up covetousness. You might recognize that that particular sin is one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it is the Tenth Commandment. And this is the one that gets Paul's attention. It convicts him. And I love the fact that this is the one that he brings up because it's different than the other nine that precede it. The other nine, for the most part, have to do with outward action. So for instance, if I murder someone, you're probably gonna know. I commit adultery, probably gonna find out. Somebody knows. If I, if I don't honor my father and mother, it'll be seen. And all those uh, can, can give testimony to one's wrongdoing, but coveting is different. It's an attitude of the heart. And it deals more with selfish desire. It deals with motive. Why, why I do the things I do, how it will make me look, how I want people to think about me. I want this money, I want this pleasure, I want this status. And I remember Paul's a Pharisee. In fact, in Philippians 3, he gives us this pedigree circumcised on the eighth day, the people of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had the best background, the best resume, the best reputation for strict adherence to the law of Moses. No one could question his passion for defending the law. And he saw himself blameless, and, or at least he hoped that everyone else saw himself that way, and they likely did. Paul, like other Pharisees, would walk around acting like there was no accusation against them because they've kept all of these things. They've, they've, they're, they're pretty proud of themselves and, and what they've been able to accomplish. And this is a trap that we can fall into as well. I want to get into that later. But now in, in the passage, here's Paul being vulnerable and he's saying, I became aware that I had an issue with coveting. He knew it was present. It had taken him over. There was no more passing grade on this sin in his life. And what makes coveting stand out is that it's also very broad ranging. It's doing a negative work in our heart. And it's saying, I'm dissatisfied with God. 
with his provision, with the things he's allowed me to have, and therefore I am making an accusation against who God is. In fact, coveting can connect to about all of the other commandments. I'm dissatisfied with what God has given me, I'm gonna steal. I'm dissatisfied with my spouse, I'm gonna commit adultery, and so on. Francis Schaeffer claims that anytime we break one of the other commandments of God that we have already broken this one, coveting. Even when you lie, you're demonstrating that you're discontent with the things about you, so you're trying to manipulate things around you, the thoughts that others might have about you so that you may appear differently than you actually are. And Paul recognizes the old law reveals this sin in him. The sin caught Paul, alerted him, as it, should, as it should us. Our sin expresses our dissatisfaction with the life that we have. We want it different. We want something more or different than what's, what is, what is there, so we actually make an accusation against God and we enter into sin. So one who thought he was following the Lord so well, doing what God wanted him to do, was actually shown through the law that he was discontent with God. Paul says in verse nine, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now one time before I looked into the mirror, sin was dead and I was alive because I had convinced myself I was good, that there's no problem. This is the way culture wants to live. And you can't get into this scripture without looking at why our culture buys into an idea of relativism. Now, I would, I would argue that I don't think anyone truly believes in relativism. It's a, it's a convenient excuse to do your own thing, but it's not the way anyone actually lives. It's a philosophical idea where as long as I'm living by my own standard, as long as I'm making my own rules, then I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good enough. If there's no other standard but my own, well, then I'm not actually doing anything wrong. And while our culture likes the idea of this, it's not actual a reality even within our own culture. Let me illustrate this way. One of the things that I love to do when I'm hanging out at home, in fact, as soon as I got done rehearsing here last night and I got home and I'm tired, the first thing my kids did as soon as I laid down is jump on me and the wrestling match began. All right? I love wrestling with them. It's excellent. I mean, we'll, we'll wrestle. They'll, they'll, they'll start me in pinned and I'll get out of it. And we, we have all sorts of fun. And, and eventually I'll tickle them and lift their shirts up and dig my beard in their belly and all that. And just, just get them riled up right before bed. It's great. My wife loves it. <laughs> but if I came to you and I said, hey, church, you should know something about one of your pastors. I am a dominant wrestler. You should see me with my kids. They don't, they don't have a chance. That's why I am such a dominant wrestler. In fact, I have a perfect record with them. I have never been beaten. Well, if that's the standard, sure. But someone here is going to argue, why don't you go face the Iowa Hawkeye wrestler that's your size? I wonder how you would have done against Dan Gable in his prime. What about, what about those Olympic wrestlers? How are you going to do there? 
And if I, if I went to try and wrestle one of those, the standard changes and what's actually revealed is I stink. I'm terrible. There, there, is, there is nothing about my wrestling. That's, and if I put my beard in their bellies, it's over. <laughs> Let me illustrate it this way. Got a good friend who, uh, he, was, he was a youth pastor, he is a youth pastor still, actually. I've been doing this for many years. Amazing man of the Lord. And he was in his first year of youth ministry, and he, he gets this call. I'm sorry, his, his elder comes in, and he says, man, you have been doing such an amazing job. We are so grateful to have you here. This first year with you at, in the youth ministry has changed so much, and we're so grateful for it. So I want to offer you this, this big raise. And I mean, he's in the middle of offering the raise, and the phone rings. And it's another older youth pastor, and he says, hey, can I, can I, do you have a minute? I need to talk to you about something that's kind of urgent. So sure. And so looks at the elders. We've got we to pause here. He, he takes them back to the, the winter retreat that they just went on together. And at that winter retreat, uh, that, that older youth pastor said, hey, we're going to play this, this dare game. This game is uh, I have an object here, and I want you to come to me and tell me what you're going to do in order to, to get this object. It was a Snickers bar or something like that. And so... Of course, one kid wanted that Snickers bar real bad, so he came up to that, that older youth pastor and he said, listen, I'll drink toilet water for that Snickers bar. Well, the older youth pastor looked at the young guy and said, I like that, go, go get this kid some toilet water. Now, the expectation is that it wasn't actually gonna be toilet water, but you know, that new youth pastor, he thought, this can't be a bad idea, so he grabs a cup at a retreat campground he goes into the toilet, men's bathroom, campground clean, dips that cup in, gives it to the kid, and the kid drinks it all. They're satisfied, and they get the Snickers bar. And here is this youth pastor calling to say, listen, this kid is really sick, and he's in the hospital now, and the health department's at the campground trying to figure out if the water system is bad. Did you actually give him toilet water? He hung up the phone, looked at that elder and said, you may want to stop this conversation right here. I'm not as good as you think I am. Now, if you looked at that cup of water, it may not look as bad as if I go to the river and bring a cup of water back and we compare the two. Or it wouldn't look as bad as if I grabbed water out of that creek, sludgy, slough thing, whatever it is that goes behind the church here, and, and I bring it back here. Mike Gray, have you actually, where is he at? Did he, I think he's actually done a demonstration with his mercy water thing where he takes some of that water there, runs it through the filtration system and drinks it. That's just disgusting. <laughs> but you would have never, it would have looked like water. In fact, it was mostly water. And yet there was something in it that caused that child to get sick. It wasn't pure. I think of that one and I think, boy, how, how, how inclined we are to be more concerned about the purity of the water we're drinking than we are about the purity of our hearts. The character of God 
is the standard of measure. People in our culture can think they are actually good by the standard they have created. But at the end of the day, that's not the standard. The culture questions who we are to judge actions of someone else. It, 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 it causes people to have, when, when, they, when they look at the eternal standard by which everyone will be judged, when they start to understand there is a king who reigns, then they may have reverence for God and awe of him, a fear of him. But relativism removes that fear, and the world has lost its fear for God. There is no concern for his judgment. Paul was good until he looked in the mirror and sin came alive. So we see that not only does the law uh, reveal sin and activate sin, but now we see that it kills. He says that the very commandment that promised life to me, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, there again, setting up that outpost, deceived me and through it killed me. The one who can follow the law will live, will have eternal life. This is, this is a promise throughout Scripture, many places. I think it's in Leviticus. I know Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. God's saying through Ezekiel, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Jesus affirms this in Mark 10. The rich young man asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That young man was trying to argue that he was keeping the commands but you can't run from this standard. You can't hide. Remember, Paul has already said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now in verse 10, we see these commands lead to death because no one can keep them. No one is good enough. No one measures up. So how can anyone save themselves? The commands held perfectly would have brought eternal life, but, but not followed, it is death. And what the law did exposing this sin to Paul was help him take that first step in recognizing a need for a savior. The law for Paul was that first step for realizing he didn't measure up and he was never going to make it on his own. We see again that sin is personified in these verses, setting up an outpost. It deceives you just as a serpent did in the garden. Sin comes along and says, you know, you'll be really good if you're your own God. If you created your own standard, if you decide your own rules, your own pleasure, your own significance, if you have your own truth, sin tries to tell you this is living. This is where life is found. Doriani says sin deceives in similar ways today. It whispers that God neither knows nor cares what we do. So we may as well do as we please as long as no one gets hurt. It's a law that is oppressive and restrictive and that life is too complex to be governed by rules. He says, above all, sin provokes the opposite errors. It invites the proud to think they can keep the law and tells the slothful that they need not try because the Bible's old-fashioned rules can't cover today's realities. Then, when the law mentions coveting, it tempts others to, dis to despair because no one can control his or her thoughts, perhaps we should give up and do as we please. And I think that's a path that many take. It causes them to crash and burn. And some may finally look into the mirror. They may see the real standard, but sin is standing there with them in the mirror. That outpost is there. And it's continuing to, to, to accuse them that you're, you're terrible. You're full of covetousness or, or fill in the blank with whatever sin that exists in your life. 
You're a loser. You should be filled with shame and guilt. There's, there's no hope. It's amazing that the same, the same one who lured you into that lifestyle now stands next to you and condemns you. And that's where some people stay, convicted this is who they are. And it destroys, absolutely destroys their life. Paul in the end, verse, verse 24 and verse seven, I'm skipping ahead. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He concludes in verse 12, affirming that the law is good, holy, righteous. It allows us to see who we really are in Adam. It's, it's not the law that's the problem, it's sin. The law is the mirror. And Doriani says it's also merciful because it tells the lawbreakers that they can be forgiven. Praise the Lord. And so there are two things in this passage that set this apart from Romans. I'm going to try to be brief here. The first thing, Paul starts to show why the law is good. I spent all my time talking about that. But the second thing that's interesting, we need to note this, is that when it gets to talking about sin... For the first time since his greeting in Romans 1, Paul brings it back to the first person. He starts to talk about himself. He's addressing his own sin. There's no mistaking that Paul takes other opportunities in his letters to address sin, the condition of our heart, as much, you know, the, the, he, he wants people to see, uh, to look at the condition of their heart as much as we do our outward expression. That's what I think is trying to, a warning for us here in this text, that we should be giving equal or more care to the inward issues with sin as much as we do that outward expression. As a Pharisee, Paul took pride in his ability to show others how well he could hold to the law, how religious he was, and in the midst of doing that, he's nursing along this sin that had resided in his heart of covetousness. What a lie, some, some live thinking that if we do things right externally, we'll be changed on the inside. Mark 7, Jesus said, all these evil things come from within, they defile a person. So we must be on guard. We must guard ourselves from being our own little Pharisees. We can be quick to become like the Pharisee in Luke 18, giving thanks to God that he's not like the tax collector, boasting of his own righteousness. Paul took a moment in our passage today to turn the attention on him, to show his sin, to show his need for a, for a savior and to put all of the blame on himself. And in doing so, he glorifies God even further by revealing the wickedness, the sin that he was so mercifully rescued from. In one of his sermons on this text, John Piper says, oh, the perils of not knowing our sin. There's a great sadness that comes from not being saddened by our own sin. There's a great pain that comes to the soul and to the marriage and to the family and to the church and to the world from not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. There's a great self-destruction that comes from not experiencing the self-devastation of knowing our sin. There is an eternal loss that comes from not losing our pride in the knowledge of our sin. If there is any hope, and any faith and any joy and peace and love, it will come from knowing our own sin. So get to know your sin. Boy, it's a rare thing that people come confessing 
their own sins. Why? I think some of us deep down have bought into an idea that grace does give us a license to sin. So instead, we're, we're, uh, that grace does not, I should say, give us a license to sin. So instead, we're going to err on being uh, legalistic. That's the side we want to go to. We want to maintain our pride. But the problem is to err at all is still to err. It is still living in the flesh, and you cannot be married to the two husbands, as we heard last week. We must live by the Spirit. And Paul, who goes on to write and expose and correct the sin of others, shows us what we must do first is start with ourselves. Who would have accepted Paul's words if he didn't start there first? We'd be fooling ourselves to thinking that it's right to get to expose the sin of others but not themselves. It's, it's, it's a heart that wants to live by its own standard. Maybe they have resistance to confessing how they contribute to any given problem and inspect others instead to come and ask them for forgiveness. They live holding others to a standard they themselves are not willing to live by. Paul calls out his sin first. He removes the log out of his own eye, equipping him to help others remove the needle out of theirs and is ultimately used to spread the gospel to the nations. We have to look at what kind of heart does Paul have towards helping others understand their sin. 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He was writing to correct them, not to bring shame, not to accuse, not to become an enemy, but because he loved the Corinthians. What an important piece of telling someone they're doing wrong. Check your heart. What's your motives? Is it a step of love for that individual, or are you trying to point this out because you want to say, I gotcha? A while back, a couple called me. They wanted to meet. I want to meet at a restaurant, and... I got to admit, I'm way over time, I'm sorry. I got to admit that um, I, was, I was a little apprehensive. I love this couple dearly. They're amazing people. And yet I, I knew that they were probably moving towards marriage and they had made the step to live together. I asked Gretchen to come with me. I, 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 sometimes you get in those situations and you want to show love to people. You want to you give an honest account of what, what the Bible says. And, uh, and people don't receive that well from, from you. My wife is a perfect compliment. She helps fill in the blanks, fill in the gaps. And so we're sitting there. We had great conversation. And then it starts to go to this topic. And to my surprise, this couple says, we're already convicted of this. You don't have to... You don't have to Tell us what we're doing is wrong. We know we're doing it's wrong. what we're doing is wrong. Can you just help us? Can you help us prepare marriage in a way that's going to honor the Lord? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Let's do it. It was awesome. They just wanted to honor God. What a beautiful wedding it was. And I didn't have to do some work of being an enemy while I'm just trying to share truth with them. And to this day, they still just want to honor the Lord. What a beautiful thing it is to watch. 
Why is the law good, righteous, and holy? It shows, shows our own desires, our own feelings are not the measure of right and wrong, what's true and false. It removes relativism, provides the ultimate standard for all people. The law takes each of us out of the false idea that somehow we are our own God, which is just our rebellion, our desire to live independently of God. Piper says that the root of our sinful condition is a commitment to be our own God. I will be God to me, or I will make sure the God I have is is a kind of God who never vetoes my legislation. That is, I will be the final authority in my life. I will decide what is right and wrong for me, and what is good and bad for me, and what is true and false for me. And my desires express my sovereignty, my autonomy. And though we usually don't say it this way, it expresses my deity. He says, our only hope is that the Holy Spirit of God would humble us so that we can see the folly of trying to be our own God and treating our own desires as law. This is what we have to be delivered from. Jesus came to deliver us from this rebellion. His death, the death that was ours, forgives us of our sin. It justifies us by faith. And the new life he offers satisfies our soul's deepest desires. You today who can't seem to overcome your sin, look to Jesus and be satisfied. Through the Savior, your sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the depths of your soul. Let's pray. What amazing, saving work you have done, Lord. Father, forgive us where we continue to err in the ways where we want to pick and choose what laws of yours to follow. We want to somehow be God of our life and not recognize you as Lord of all. May in this moment, God, we turn our hearts and attention to only sin that you desire to convict us of so that lovingly, Lord, we can do a work like Paul did that eventually leads to nations being changed by the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. God, I also pray that you give us a real distaste for our sin as we distaste other things that are far lesser in our lives. Be praised from this message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.